Well, thrilled that you're here, and if, uh, if you're a guest, welcome, glad that you're here uh, as a part of Element City Church, and as Lyle has mentioned, it's Palm Sunday, kind of leading into Holy Week, and, and uh, we have been in a series in the book of Esther that we are wrapping up and finishing tonight. We've been in there for the last four weeks or so, and so if you've missed any of those, you're welcome to go back to our Element City Church app, and you can watch or listen to any of those. In fact, if you have the app, you can open it up tonight and follow along on sermon notes, and it's going to actually give you a recap. I'm going to take a little bit of time just kind of recapping where we've been uh, the last few weeks, kind of catching us up as we culminate this whole series, this concept of building bravery, what we see in the life of Esther the life of Mordecai, as they kind of step into a season of history in the Jewish people in, in, a, in a realm of the Persian domain to kind of make a difference. And so tonight is all about remembering. How many of you uh, remember playing what's called the memory game, whether maybe you're grandparents, maybe you are a parent and you played this with your kids, maybe you're an aunt or an uncle, you've played this with your nieces and nephews, the memory game where you put the cards out and they're upside down, you have to turn over two at a time and you try to match them up. How many of you have remembered playing that? How many of you are really good at that? Okay, how many of you really struggle and it's annoying. Okay, so that's me. That's my category. And uh, especially when you're playing against a four-year-old, and they're like, and they're beating you. And you're like, man, I am not good at memory. Uh, but this tonight, I want you to kind of keep this idea of remembering in your mind. And the whole key for that game was to remember which card was where and how you would turn that over, and you'd try to remember where that was, and then you turn over the one next to it, and you'd be like, oh, uh, and you know it's close, and you're there. But remembering is key to life. How many of you remember your high school locker? combination. Anyone? It's kind of weird if you do, uh, but how many of you remember your PIN number right now? Don't say it because that's, don't, yeah, don't. Uh, but how many of you remember like your very first car and all the idiosyncrasies of the, that particular first car, the way it would clunk and, and go and, and how many of you remember your first boyfriend or girlfriend? You know, this remembering is a part of life and as we get older, it, it's nice to look back and to continue to remember. So memory is important, to remember things matters. And so let's kind of remember a little bit over this series of what we've been in, looking at the, uh, the story of Esther. Remember, we defined Esther in six words. We said it's the Game of Thrones without the dragons, right? It's, it's everything about kings and queens and elaborate wealth and hidden agendas, good versus evil. It involves sex, power, pride, tragedy, triumph. God's name's not even mentioned in the book, yet his fingerprints are all over the place. Throughout the entire story, week one, we looked at this idea that God is always at work, even when it doesn't look like he's at work, even when it looks like he's absent or, or that he's not even there or present, he is actually overseeing all things because he alone is sovereign. A lot of people think they're in charge, a lot of people want to act like they're in control, but they're not. God alone is sovereign and in control over history. And when you find yourselves like the Jewish people in the Persian Empire living in exile, meaning you're living in a culture that goes against what you value, what do you do? And the tendency is that we go one of two ways, that we either conform to culture and we just kind of trade in our values and say, I'm just going to become part of what culture is, or we isolate away from culture and we insulate ourselves from it. And yet both those paths lead to failure. And really what we're seeing in the life of Esther and Mordecai throughout the story doesn't start strong, but it builds steam and it builds up this bravery going throughout the story is this idea that we gotta find a third way. We called it the Jesus way. 
a way that is not based on just assimilating in nor isolating away from, but trying to be a part of and to have influence into culture. Because this reality is that in Scripture we're called to be in this world but not of it. And there's this tension we will have to wrestle with as we try to figure out what is that third way and how do we go about living that way. We said the key takeaway for this whole series was this. At times, God may seem silent, but he is never absent, friend. He may seem quiet and not, you know, readily available or present, but he is never absent. Week two, we saw this idea that the difference between worldly sense of power that tries to base on control and dominate over people versus a godly sense of power, one that is anchored in a vulnerability and advocating on behalf of others. And that's what we see begin to play out in the life of Esther and Mordecai. Week three, Esther steps up, right? And it's into this amazing scene where she doesn't have the authority, but yet on behalf of her people, she steps up. And right before she does that, she intentionally hits pause. And she begins to pray and to wait on the Lord. And we saw that those two habits are meant to be a part of the rhythm of our life as we follow after Jesus, that prayer and waiting on the Lord are spiritual practices that we are to engage in. It will actually help us in the decisions of life And we have to have intentional pause moments where we don't just rush ahead. We're to make prayer not our last resort, but it's to be our first priority. We're not to get in a hurry and try to get on ahead of God. How many of you struggle with that? I do. I like to get on ahead of God. I just like to encourage him and and help him in the work that he's doing. Um, But the reality is he's calling me to wait and, and to wait on his timing and to wait in rhythm of walking life with him. That we're not to run ahead of God, but we're to run to God and to seek his wisdom as we walk with him in the realities and the pace of life. And then last week, we looked at this idea that God stepped in to the story, though his name is not even mentioned in the book. The reality of his presence and his sovereignty and his will acting on behalf of his people is undeniable. In this story, it flips the entire script and that God can do more in one day or one night of insomnia than you can do in your entire life. And the odds of that, of how in the world God saved his people and and saved uh, them from Haman. Remember, we booed Haman. He's the bad guy of the story. And yet how God stepped in through Esther and Mordecai. And we looked at uh, Mordecai's life and said, hey, look, you know, he, he saved the king from this overthrow plot years before, never got recognized, got slighted, overlooked. And, and what we need to learn from Mordecai is when that happens, when it feels like you're doing good and not getting noticed, don't let it build up a heart of vengeance within you. Don't let it build up a heart of pride within you. What we saw from Mordecai is he never becomes a man of vengeance. He doesn't speak against those who slighted him. He just maintains his integrity. He lets God be his defender, and he just keeps on keeping on. And that's the call as a follower of God. Uh, We read this in uh, Galatians 6, 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Be faithful to God. Keep doing good works. When no one else notices, mark it down. God does. And that's what God was doing for Mordecai. Mordecai, I know you feel like you got overlooked, but my timing is best, and I need it to come on when the king has insomnia. That's the night I'm going to remind him.
and the odds of that happening. And we saw the pull between the life of Mordecai and the life of Haman, that there is this spiritual tug of war that will go on in every human heart, the tug of war toward pride or humility. And pride calls for us to make it all about us and to be self-consumed and to seek the good of oneself only. And humility is this path that calls us to be on behalf of others and not to become consumed with selfishness, but to pursue selflessness, to serve and not be served. That Jesus modeled this, remember? Luke 14, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Scott Sauls said this, we looked at it last week. Jesus doesn't separate the world into good people and bad people. He separates the world into proud people and humble people. And what's more, he opposes the proud, but yet he gets grace to the humble. That this pursuit of humility, the path of humility, is to be our pursuit as a follower of Jesus. When pride tries to worm its way into your heart, you must weed it out. Every time, all the time, diligently, you must ruthlessly eliminate pride from your heart. And as you grow a heart of humility, a heart more and more like Jesus, you become more and more like him. And isn't that the goal of a disciple? To become more and more like the one they follow? And so this path of humility, this heart of humility, is to be what marks us. And that's what marked Mordecai's life. And the whole story changes. Maybe Remember? Haman comes in. He's going to try to get Mordecai killed. And all of a sudden, the king says, hey, I remember Mordecai. He saved my life. I want you to go honor him. And then by the end of the night, Haman's the one who's impaled on the pole, 75 foot. Remember? Double this of what he built for Mordecai. And the irony of this and how God moves and he stepped in on, on uh, Esther and Mordecai's behalf. And so tonight I want to pick up and kind of end this story. And, and the story ends with a battle, but that's not really the end of the story. The fact that the story of Esther actually ends with a celebration. And that's where I want us to go because the celebration is all about remembering. And it's key for us to keep remembering as a part of our spiritual journey. And so if you were to read through chapters 8 through 10, I'm just going to summarize for you tonight. We'll look at a couple passages. You would see a bunch of different things. In fact, you may see some stuff that would maybe rattle you a little bit when you first read it and you go, I don't know if I like how this plays out because it just seems so messy. And there's, there's stuff that might rub against how you see the world. You'd reach through here and you begin to see that Esther is granted Haman's estate after Haman is killed and impaled in his home pole and she hands it over to Mordecai. Mordecai is actually raised up in power underneath King Xerxes. And then this is what happens. Because the edict that was sent by Haman for the annihilation of the Jews hasn't stopped. Haman's been stopped. But the edict that went out is still in play. And there's still things that are going to happen in the future and this coming month, this coming day, when people will be allowed to attack all the Jews. And so here's Esther for the second time, going before the king with her life in her hands. Doesn't know, if, if I perish, I perish, she says. She says. And she goes uh, before him, and this is what you read in Esther 8, 5. She goes before the king, he raises the scepter, allows her to come in. If it pleases the king, she said, if he regards me with favor, thinks it's the right thing to do, if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman had sent out and devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. 
For how can I bear to see the disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? Speaking on behalf of her Jewish family. And the king is moved, and he hands the edict, this special ring to Mordecai and says, it's seal, the seal of the king, and you can write a new edict to, to go, but what has been written can't be changed. But you can write a new thing to go out. And so they craft a new edict that goes out that the Jews will be able to defend themselves on that day of persecution, the day that's meant to be the annihilation, the, the pre-Holocaust Holocaust, if you will that they can stand up and defend themselves. And so that's actually what you read in chapter 8 and some of chapter 9 is what seems like this holy war. And at first pass, when you read through it, it's kind of troubling, just to be honest. And you can read through it from an angle and go, why would God allow that? I don't understand what's happening here. And I know it's a different context of what we understand in the 21st century and here in America and all of that. And I know it can be troubling, but here's what I hang my hat on. Part of the beauty of Scripture is the messiness of Scripture. That the authors don't write things out or alleviate or move things away. There's, there's a messiness to it that's real life. And it's tension-oriented at times. And, and there's parts of it that you go, I, I don't know. I'm reading through the Old Testament this year. There's parts I've stumbled on. I'm like, I, man, I, I don't like that, God. It just messes with my mind. I, I don't understand and I think that's part of the beauty of the scriptures is the grace and hope that we have in Jesus and yet the messiness of scripture and the messiness of the reality of what was going on doesn't get alleviated, doesn't get kind of pushed to the side or overwritten. And so the Jews are able to raise up and they're not annihilated. Victory is secured for them. The Jewish people survive. The plot to wipe them out is not something that plays out. And so then you fast forward in toward the end of chapter nine and here's what you read. Mordecai, uh, verse 20, chapter 9, Mordecai recorded these events, and he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the, all the provinces of King Xerxes, throughout the whole Persian Empire, near and far, to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th day of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies, the month where their sorrow was turned into joy, and their mourning into a day of celebration. He wrote them to observe these days as days of feasting, and joy in giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. Verse 27, the Jews took it on themselves to establish this custom that they and their descendants and all who joined them would not fail to observe these two days every year. These days would be remembered and observed in every generation for every family and in every province and every city as days of Purim, the festival of Purim. They should never fail to be not to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. The festival of Purim is how this story ends. Most stories end with a battle victory. And that's the story fades and the, the movie cuts out and, and that's the end. But this, this story ends with a celebration and a festival that's meant to be carried on year after year as a part of remembering. It's still practiced today. In fact, it was practiced just a couple weeks ago. And so this whole festival of Purim is meant to be going on. Purim is inaugurated as a way of saying, never forget. 
Never forget what, G- what God has done for us and how he has stepped in on behalf of our people and saved us. A Jewish author, uh, Harzoni, writes and describes that during the Persian Empire, so you're coming out of Babylonian captivity and into Persian captivity, and how the Jews were still dispersed throughout their whole Persian Empire as a, a small remnant of them had gone back to Jerusalem. So this was a unique time in history for the Jews. He writes this, it was only after the dispersal throughout the Babylonian Persian Empire that an individual born as a Jew found himself in immediate constant personal contact with other possible entities. And they had a choice for themselves whether Jewishness would be something they would maintain or something they would hide. This interesting time of history And what he writes about is that this moment of history in the story of Esther, it was almost like a refounding for God's people, that they would re-anchor themselves to who they really are, a refounding of them. And this has several things, I think, this festival of Purim for Christians to understand. The first is this, a celebration is a part of the inheritance of our faith. God's faithfulness to the Jews leads directly to his faithfulness to us in Jesus. That if that hadn't happened, if God hadn't stepped in, who's to say what would have happened and what would have fallen out? Moreover, it reminds us that there's always opposition to God's people. It remains a triumph of the faithful in the midst of a faithless world. That there's always going to be this turmoil going on and, and an opposition against God's people. And yet God is there. Purim is a celebration that reminds us that no matter what, no matter what's happening, how dark things get, there is always a reason to hope. And even in a more personal level, Purim is a call to a reawakening. That's what happened for Esther and Mordecai, a reawakening. See, when you compare them to Daniel, we talked about this in week one, Daniel has this strong, incredible faith from such an early age, and it never wavers. I look at the Daniel fast and go, man, I can't do that. Vegetables? Oh, I like meat. You know? So it's just simple things like that. And then you talk about all the ways he lived out his faith and how he stood up to kings. And, and I look at Daniel's life and I go, I don't know if I'm like that. And I think the truth is a lot of us would look at that and go, I'm probably a lot more like Esther and Mordecai, who maybe there's a, some assimilation, but I want to be faithful. And there's this tug and, and this back and forth and this turmoil that's going on, and yet God is building this bravery within Esther. And God longs to build this bravery within us to find out and navigate what is this third way. How do I not assimilate? How do I not isolate? How do I live this way of Jesus, even in my cultural context? When I begin to wrestle with and figure out how do I do this and this reawakening that happens with us. Esther and Mordecai were were, were started off compromised and assimilated into Persian, yet they awoke to their Jewish identity and took bold steps on behalf of God. The story rivals kind of the Apostle Paul, the story of surprising redemption for him against the church and persecuting it, and yet in the road to Damascus, Jesus meets him, and his life has changed. And he begins to grow in this working out of following the Lord and establishing so much of the early church, this reawakening of faith within him. This book doesn't end with a victory in battle. It ends with a party in celebration. Can I get an amen? That's pretty good. 
we have known and watched how the Persians love banquets, right? The whole story started with a 187-day banquet. And yet here, the Jews at the very, very end are saying, look, this is something we need to celebrate. We need to remember, and this celebration will help us remember. Esther is a story of a group of people finding their way back to God through a darkened world, finding their voice for a faithful and vulnerable witness, and seeking to ensure that future generations will carry this forward. And we also need to find courage to stand while the world around us clings to idols. The courage to give ourselves to a kingdom cause that is greater than us, rather than living an empty life of just numbness. We're in the same tension, different setting that we must wrestle with. The story, perhaps more than anything, describes God himself at work in a world gone mad. Because the darkness around us can sometimes overwhelm us. I don't know if you feel that. Sometimes it can feel like our faith is shrinking or shrinking back. But we always can remember that if we are faithless, he remains faithful, 2 Timothy says. That we may not see his hand or hear his name. And he may appear silent, but he is never absent from our story and what he wants to do. Leaning into this story, I think, prods us with a simple question. Is your personal private faith with God beginning to do something and have a public impact for God? Is your private personal faith with God beginning to have a public impact for God? That's a question that every believer, every follower of Jesus must wrestle with. That's what we see begin to play out in the life of Esther and Mordecai. It didn't start that way, but it began to have this impact in flowing out. The story from beginning to end is all about transformation. The book of Esther tells us how God sometimes shows up in silence. And in the darkness of doubt and humiliation and tension and loss, he is still there. In the most unlikely possible ways, his grace can manifest itself precisely even within his hiddenness, his presence is known. Whatever dark place you may be in today, whether by a hapless circumstance or by your own actions, God has not forgotten you, friend. And Esther's story invites us to cling to hope, however small, and to not have confidence in what's currently maybe empowered around us because God's story is not done being written. He is still at work, and his hope is still going forward, and we can cling to hope, even if it's a small sliver of hope, because that's all he needs. Because our godly hope is not based on your endurance or my endurance or your strength or my strength. It's based solely on his sovereignty and his power. And all he wants is a little bit of hope, and he can do a lot of things with that. Um, Mike Cosper wrote a book called Faith Among the Faithless, all about the book of Esther. I, I read it in preparing for this series. I love what he writes here. He says, Esther's story reveals a way forward in a culture where people of faith find themselves at the margins of society. She neither clutches for power nor seeks self-protection. Instead, she faces reality, embraces weakness, finds faith and hope and help from a world unseen. Her story is also an invitation for those whose faith and convictions and morality are less than what they wish they were. And I think it's this call to say, God, I, I want to be better. I want to have more. I, I want to be a better reflection of you. And I'm maybe not there yet, but I'm still a work in progress. And I trust that he who began a good work in me 
is faithful to complete it. And I just want to walk more and more with him. The establishment of Purim is to help us remember. It's fascinating. It could have ended with the battle. But the story goes on for another chapter and a half. Because it's the celebration of remembering that really is the key to this whole book. The remembering that God stepped in. As Esther stepped up into the story and, and kind of came out of the shadows, building bravery and God pouring that in, she steps up and God steps in and changes everything. And he longs for that pattern to be a part of our lives. As we step up, God steps in. And that he is a part of this and that we constantly as human beings need to be reminded and need to remember how God does that over and over and over again. And this challenge, I think, is important because we are reminded of what Jesus gave us to help us remember. As he talks about the Lord's Supper and he establishes an ordinance for us to say, look, I want you to do this in remembrance of you. No, in remembrance of him. He says, do this in remembrance of me. Everything that we're getting ready to celebrate as we move toward Good Friday, and I want to encourage you to be a part of the Good Friday experience here from 6.30 to 8.30, just some different stations that you can have a self-guided time to remember what Jesus has done for you. And as we celebrate next Sunday and Easter, the resurrection, the hope that we have in Jesus, this amazing reality that is meant to mark us forever and to refresh us anew. Jesus gave us a practice of the Lord's Supper to help us remember everything he had done. In Luke 22, he says this to his disciples, I eagerly have awaited to eat this Passover meal with you. Just being real, I don't know if I was Jesus if I could say that. Because I, I know how this story goes, and Jesus knew too, what the next two, three, four days was going to be like, and everything he would endure. And yet, before that, he says to his followers, I've eagerly desired to eat this meal with you. I want to establish something that will help you remember my love and my hope and my grace for you. As a, as a part of the Christian faith, we really only have two main ordinances. One is baptism, that we would celebrate what Jesus did with John the Baptist and what he's kind of called all throughout church history, is that we would come and be baptized as a follower of Jesus. We would say, hey, I recognize what Jesus did. It was his life and his death and his resurrection that has marked me and changed me as a person of faith. And here in a couple weeks, we're going to have another chance for baptisms. And if you've never been baptized, if you've said yes to Jesus, or maybe you're sitting here and you're wanting to say yes to Jesus, Tonight or next week, I encourage you to do so. And maybe to step forward then and say, I want to follow him in baptism. The second one is the Lord's Supper. We kind of do this as a tradition here in our church. Uh, most weeks we offer it as a chance to kind of re-anchor ourselves. It's a way of tethering ourselves to Christ and to him alone and to his act and what he has done for us to show us this is the reality of our faith, that the ground at the cross is level. There is no hierarchy at the cross. We are all in need of a Savior. 
And as we show up there, we are met by a savior of grace and hope and love for us. And the table that Jesus gave us is to help remind us that we are welcome into his presence. It's meant to tether us to the one truth of our Christian faith that it's all and always will be about Jesus alone, period. It's about him and what he's done, not what we do. We get to do things, but it's not to earn something. It's we live tethered to Jesus. It's centered on him alone, anchored to him completely. And so Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians. He says, I receive from the Lord what I have passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is part of the new covenant. In my blood, do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And then a couple verses down, Paul says this, everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink from the cup. This examination is not this idea of I've got to confess all my sins and make sure I've done all that. We want to be a people who confess. But we don't confess to get forgiveness. You have been given forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus said it is finished. And so we come to the table to be reminded, to remember Jesus. And everything he's done, as we examine our hearts, it's really about trying to keep close relational connection and intimacy between him and us, that we don't have things clog up our relationship or hinder our ability to hear one another or connect with one another. That's what examining our heart is about. And so in a moment, I'm going to invite you invite us to partake of communion. A little bit different way tonight. Uh, in a moment, I'm gonna pray for us and then I'm gonna dismiss you in a way that we've got communion tables. There's two in the back, two down front here. Gluten-free crackers over here. At all the other four tables, there's a loaf of bread. And I'm gonna invite you to just peel off a piece of that, take a, a chunk of that, um, and to take one of the juice cups. And, and not to partake of that, but just to simply take that back to your seat and just take a moment to examine your own heart. As Paul said, to say, Jesus, I just want to remember everything you've done for me. I don't want to just kind of hop over this. Sometimes as we do this weekly, it, it can become a rote thing, and just a routine. And friends, I want it to be fresh for you, to remember the grace and the hope and the love that Jesus has for you, the forgiveness that he's given as a follower of him. And so the table invites anyone who has clung to the Savior who hung in the cross for us and invites you to say, look, everyone's welcome. Listen, think about this. For 2,000 plus years, this has been what has anchored the church and believers of Jesus to remember everything he has done. You are part of a local church, and that's awesome. We love having you a part of here. But you are part of something way bigger than you think you are. For thousands of years, this is what has anchored us to faith. And so, Jesus, we just pray these next couple minutes as we partake of communion, as we take that bread and that cup back to our seed, as we hold that in our hands, that we would take a moment to reflect of gratitude, of examining our own heart, of 
if we need to own up to anything, if we're out of alignment somewhere, we want to confess that to you, align our hearts again to you. Jesus, it's always been about you alone. And so in these next few moments, we invite your spirit to stir our hearts afresh, to move within this room, within us. We ask that in Jesus' name. So you're gonna grab those elements, take them back to your seat, hold on to it. We're gonna take this all together. Jesus said to his followers, I've eagerly awaited. There was an anticipation. Despite all the heartache and the pain that was to come, as he endured the cross, but for the joy set before him, he endured it for you and for me. And as followers of Jesus for thousands of years, on every corner of the globe, friends, we're a part of something so much bigger. As people who have gathered and said, I've trusted this Savior. He's my Savior. And he said to his followers, you're gonna do this in remembrance of me. And so in a moment, we're gonna take the bread, remembering his broken body that hung in that cross, broken that we might be whole. I just wanna say a short, small little prayer to have you repeat after me. As we just kinda re-anchor and tether our hearts to this, we simply say, Lord Jesus Christ, we remember your body broken to make us whole. Your life given so that we may have life in you and with you. We remember Jesus and we thank you. Take and eat. Jesus took the cup that night and he passed it. This part of the Passover meal, something he would have done for every year of his life, these disciples, every year of their life, and yet there was a, a new time where he took it and he passed. This is the seal of a new covenant, he said, sealed in my blood, that you might have the forgiveness of sins. So repeat after me. Lord Jesus Christ, we remember your blood shed for the forgiveness of my sins. Your life given so I may have life in you and with you. We remember Jesus and we thank you. Take and drink. Jesus, we worship you. As we worship you in song here and a couple closing thoughts and a song to end. Father, we have tethered our heart again, our life again to you and you alone. For thousands of years, your followers have done this. And would you stir our hearts afresh and anew as we sing, as we worship you. As we enter into Holy Week, make our way toward Good Friday and this Easter to celebrate your resurrection. I pray this week would be a week where your spirit speaks into our life afresh and anew. 
Would you surprise us again? Would you expand our wonder of who you are and all you've done for us? We worship you.